Next Chapter Podcasts. These are the same noises I make when I'm trying to piss off my downstairs neighbor, Paula. And then it just kicks in. So much fun to fake sing any better. It really is fun. Yeah, yeah. Here on here, here. Give me, hit me. Uh, you want to hear some Eddie? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, so come on here to pay. Uh, that's that's, that's that good? all right. I mean, for I a guy who's seen him forty times, I, that's not my best impression. I feel on the spot. I'm here nervous. You go. I'm you're terrified. on. You're in Madison Square Garden. Uh, the crowd's going nuts. And hit me with the opening to Even Flow. Go. Razzy is head on a pillow made of concrete. Yeah, that's, so you're a better singer than I. I'm not I'm a, I'm not a, I'm not a singer. Yeah, I'll, I'll be the first to say I that. I apologize. I got but a question. Second, I said it first. Uh, you're better no, than I said, me. But I said it with much more inflection and that's, much more uh, passion in my voice. Last exit from Pearl Jam from the 1994 hit record Vitology. It's also number 485 out of 500 on the 500 with Josh Adam Myers. I am the king of fleece. All kneel before me. What is up, fleece army? Hope you had a beautiful week. Hope you enjoyed the wonderful interview with Wanda Sykes. And I hope you are enjoying this quest through Rolling Stone Magazine's top 500 albums list from Five Honey down to Numero Uno Cochuno Scuscluno Baduno. That's how I talk 90% of the time to my dog. I'm going to make this one quick because I have to tape this to make sure we can get it out early enough for the Record Store Tuesday people, and I am on my way to go see Kiss with Jeff Ross at the Whiskey, and I have to get there so early so I can pick up the wristbands to make sure we can get in. This is why I fucking love this podcast, guys, because I never would have been a KISS fan if I never heard KISS Destroyer and talked about it with the one and only Jeff Ross. So I will report back on all the sosh about what's going on, but let me say this to each and every one of you guys. I love you. Thank you guys for making this experience the greatest experience of my life. Our guest this week is the one and only Joe List. You've seen him on The Tonight Show. He just recently had a late, late show appearance with James Corbin doing an incredible stand-up set. He's done Conan, and you've seen him on season two of the stand-ups on Netflix. Joe is a real Pearl Jam fan. Joe has seen the band 40 times live. I've seen them twice. I've seen Beck 18 times live. You know what's funny? The band I've seen the most, probably Peter, Paul, and Mary. Because my parents used to drag me to PPM concerts, Pippums, and I fucking hate them. How many times can you hear Puff the Magic Dragon before you want to kill yourself? You know what I mean? But Joe is the perfect guest to break down Vitalogy. Don't forget to listen to the end of the podcast where we spotlight a new artist that was directly influenced by Pearl Jam. Also, guys, whatever platform you're listening to, Rate, review, and subscribe to the 500. Tell two people that you fuck with this podcast because I fuck with you guys. 
Follow me on all social media at Josh Adam Myers, spelled M-E-Y-E-R-S. Don't fucking spell it M-Y. I'm sick of that shit. You're not a comedy booker. Fucking do some research before you tag me and shit. Comedy bookers of Los Angeles. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. And for all things 500, go to our website, the500podcast.com. So with that being said, here we go. We're number 495 out of 500 with Vitality This is that was it. That was your Eddie Scrowl. That was more of a James Brown, I think. <laughs> hey. <laughs> I think I do a decent James Brown. <laughs> hey. I, maybe not. I don't know. It, it wasn't good. that bad. It's not horrible. Uh, it's so fun to sit down with you to finally talk about this. Um, as soon as I said I was doing uh, Pearl Jam Vitalogy, I had I posted it on Facebook. I was like, "Who do you know, uh, audience that likes Pearl Jam?" And like ten people said, "You." I know. I appreciate that. That makes me feel good that I have uh, an identity amongst uh, fans of comedy and music. Well, you've talked about it, I assume, a bunch. Yeah. Well, I do uh, my podcast where it's like you know we tell stories or whatever. It's not really stories, but shit we've been doing. And I go to see them so often. Like I saw them four times this summer, so it comes up a lot. Just this summer, you saw them four times. Yeah, I went two shows at Safeco Field in Seattle, two shows at uh, Fenway Park in Boston. So I'm up to 40 Pearl Jam shows now. So how did that start? So when did you find out about Pearl Jam? How old were you? Where were you living? Give me the whole spiel. Well, I mean, I guess I was a kid. Well, first of all, like the first records came out um, in 91. So I was like nine. At that time, I was probably listening to like Billy Joel. I was big into Billy Joel and then Guns N' Roses. Those were like my first albums. It was Billy Joel. <laughs> get your door down at <laughs> Is that all you get for your money? Yes, exactly. I got Billy Joel, Greatest Hits Volume 1 and 2, which I still love. Two and of then, the best albums. I mean, that's one album, but it's his his Greatest Hits is fantastic. Killer. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. And then I had that, and then I got... You used- may be right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it kicks out. I mean, it runs the gamut, too, because he's got like kind of piano bar music. You yeah. Know, piano man. Piano man, and then... And then it gets kind of poppy into the 80s. That's I think that everybody, because everybody's parents likes Billy Joel, and so they kind of give you Billy Joel at a young age, and you realize how good it is, and yeah. it just sticks with you. Yeah, it was a, it was beautiful. I mean, like, Piano Man is, like, one of my favorite tunes ever, and, like, Only the Good Die Young was, like, our big, like, party, you know, uh, wedding song, and, like, Only the Everyone feels like everyone feels like that's us, man. <laughs> Fuck it, we're gonna we're gonna live forever. We're bad. Um, but then, so yeah, then I got into Guns N' Roses. So it was like a little hard, like Appetite and Usual Illusion Two. Uh, I was like way into that. And then when you're young, you get like two bands you're into. I listened to Guns N' Roses and Billy Joel. <laughs> that's what I listened to. Uh, you're, uh, are you I, I, you had one with me. I'm, I'm Guns N' Roses. Uh, Guns um, N' Roses was my number one. So yeah, I was like way into that. And then. I think Vitology might have actually been like the first Pearl Jam record I remember because like Bill, uh, Better Man came out yeah. and that was big. And I remember wanting to bu- go into like the CD store with my parents and wanting to buy that. I bought that and uh, Throwing Copper by Live. Great record. And I didn't know 
who old? was who? Like I just knew those two songs. They're kind of on the radio, like Better Man and Lightning Crashes were kind of on the radio at the same time. I think I think uh, Live is the only band that had a hit song with the word placenta in it. <laughs> oh yeah, probably. That the makes placenta sense. falls to the floor. Yeah. Pick it up. Which is really yucky. <laughs> it's um, yucky. But though, though I got into those, and then like I kind of went off in that '90s rock thing, and then I kind of discovered like Ten and Verses after. But I kind of got all three at the same time. Oh, so you went, you were Vitalogy first, and then you went back. You don't remember the first time you heard a live or even flow? Maybe. Well, Jeremy, I guess I remember the Jeremy video. I should say that was like the first thing I remember is the Jeremy video, and thinking like this is unbelievable. And um, so yeah, I guess I was into that. But I think maybe by the time I had heard that, it was a little bit later. Yeah. Because uh, that stayed in rotation on MTV or whatever for a while. I remember I went to uh, my friend, my sister's friend, Rebecca Wilkins, uh, bat mitzvah. And uh, they were, they were, all they kept talking about was the kid that played Jeremy in the video was there. Oh, he was, wow. he was like friends of the family or something like that. And like, I got like jealous. I was like, that fucking. <laughs> I, w- <laughs> I wish I could have been Jeremy. I could have been. I could have killed myself. So, so, so you hear Vitalogy first, um, you know, and then so how did that grow into this this in- incredible love for the band? Well, they I was just way into them, and this I got into them like mid nineties, eighth grade ish area, probably ninety four, ninety five, and then. They just seem like the best band. And I got lucky because I got really, of all those bands, kind of Stone Temple Pilots and Nirvana, I was way into Nirvana too. Um, and then, like, I kind of got into right when, like, Cobain killed himself. And I was like, one of these guys, like, we're never going to see the likes of him again. <laughs> yeah. And, like, I had, like, Gone But Not Forgotten written on my wall and, like, that kind of shit. Because I was, I was were 12. You, were you a grunge kid? Oh, big time. Yeah, yeah. Really? Because I, I, I found that. It was like Guns N' Roses was a little more like grander, and it was like they had been pat, but like Pearl Jam was like in the moment on MTV now yeah. and Nirvana, and so I got really into both of those. It's hard to like pinpoint when it was just kind of I loved all those bands, and then I first saw Pearl Jam in like '96, was my second concert. I went and saw Smashing Pumpkins first, and I thought that was great, but like not nearly the Pearl Jam's energy and thing. Corgan was kind of cunty and like. They left. They took like long encores. They did like two songs after the encore, but it was like blew my mind at the time. Yeah. But then I went and saw Pearl Jam, and it was like such a different energy. And they even back then they were playing these like killer live shows. But it was like I missed the part where like Eddie was climbing the rigging and jumping into the crowd and that kind of real That's wild like 10. shit. Yeah, That's yeah, exactly. 10. That 91, 92. I started to join the. The grunge kids, if you want to call it that, they smoke cigarettes. My friend Tassos, Ben, Dave Cullen, and I actually liked Pearl Jam. I thought Pearl Jam was just a lot catchier. I loved Alive, um, and I loved Evenflow. And Jeremy was—I didn't really dig Jeremy as much, but I—I um, I remember I presented that when I started hanging out with them. I presented that I was like, "Dude, I'm like I'm a Pearl Jam fan." They were like, "You can't like Pearl Jam if you're hanging out with us. We're Nirvana fans." Yeah, they got like blowback because I think Cobain kind of like um, criticized them a bit, and they, they became so big, and the people thought it was like kind of weirdly poppier and that first album they've said it and i think is like a little bit overproduced and eddie has a little more of the like like his like by time vitology is more of like and versus too are more like almost like punk records a lot of those yes tracks heavily heavily uh punk and like well i would say as i read in the best description is 70s rock and 80s punk right this is an album which let's just jump into it, and we'll get to we'll get to everything. This is an album that it, they they wrote on the road in between touring 
for verses. Right. So this is as I was talking to my buddy Morty about it. They put out they put out ten uh, in ninety one. They put out um, verses in ninety three, and then immediately started writing this on the road. Right. And this is also right around the time that they're dealing, like you said, with the Ticketmaster uh, problems and they're 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 blowing up in their fame. And then Kurt Cobain dies. Right. And it just puts this cloud over everything. There's fighting in the band, like they they just kick out a drummer. All this shit is going on and I think it shows in the record. So let's let's talk about this. It's our record is number 485 out of 500. It's the third studio album, Vitology by Pearl Jam, released on November 22nd, 1994. And it was recorded, like I said, on the road. They recorded it at Bad Animal Studio in Seattle, Southern Tracks Rec- Recording and Doppler Studios in Atlanta, and Kingsway Studio in New Orleans, Louisiana. And it was produced... By Brendan O'Brien, one of the biggest rock producers of the 90s. Right, who they're still working with today. Yeah, yeah. completely. I mean, he's, the guy's produced so much shit. Um, so, so, so take me through what you felt when you first heard this record. Boy, it's hard to like remember and pinpoint because now it's like records take on different meaning at, through life and of stuff. Course. And like the early on, it's like I was, again, like 13 years old or whatever. So it wasn't like I was, um, maybe I didn't know as much, but like. That was I remember like Nothing Man is on there, which felt like the first real Pearl Jam ballad. Yeah, um, which was like touch. I remember like I'm gonna jump all over the place. I remember my eighth oh. grade uh, semi. I didn't like get invited or whatever. So I remember like sitting at home just listening to Nothing Man. <laughs> I was like this like twelve <laughs> year old. Yeah, this like tortured Nothing kid. Man. I was like that was like, me. Fuck man. you, Tina. Yeah, I'm like I'm a Nothing Man <laughs> and like stuff that like I didn't realize how deep it was, but it meant whatever to me, you know. Yeah, and then. Uh, yeah, it's hard to like remember. I remember like I can remember being in whatever grade and like not even knowing who because it doesn't have their name on the cover, so it's just like Vitology. I didn't even know. I remember listening to it and not even knowing who it was really. It was just like I was buying all these albums that everyone had that was cool, like Live and uh, Vitology and all that stuff. I remember the um, the artwork was fucking weird and had all this. There was like a skull and lungs and all this weird shit and like yeah, it's it's made to be this like old medical book yeah yeah, uh, and it, it's just some of the the shit in it isn't even the lyrics. It's just these weird statements that we're gonna get into in a little bit. Um, I mean, this was my my buddy said to me, and it, and it makes so much sense. Is like you know back in the back in the sixties when the band was hot, they were just churning out records, right? Mm-hmm. And for for Pearl Jam is like one of those last bands with this album where they didn't wait and finish the touring on verses. They just kept writing music. Right, right. And I think it shows with all the stuff that's going on. So now you listening to it now at whole, how old are you? Uh, 36 now. 36. Like how did, how do you feel about the record now? Now I, I mean, I love it. Uh, now I think it's their best record, which you were saying verses in, 10 or higher on the list or lower, whatever you want yeah, to say. Yeah, lower on better, the list. Better, higher ranked or better ranked. I think it's their best album, and I think most people sort of feel that way. Like, the experts, anyways, that I've uh, read think it's, like, their best work. I think that, like, it's Eddie's best vocal lyric. I think his vocals sound the best because, again, it's not as much as that, like, that, that kind of thing, which I also love. Eddie Vedder taught people that you, uh, that anybody could sing. You right, didn't right. have to have like a perfect singing voice. Right. It's so much fun to fake sing Eddie Vedder. It really is fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hit on here. Hit me. Hit me. 
Uh, you want to hear some Eddie? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, so come on here to pay. Uh, that's that that's good? all right. I mean, for I a guy who's seen him 40 times. I, that's not my best impression. I feel on the spot. I'm here nervous. You go. I'm you're terrified. on you're in Madison Square Garden. Uh, the crowd's going nuts. And hit me with the opening to even flow. Go. Breezy. Breezy is head on a pillow made of concrete. Yeah, that's, so you're a better singer than I. I'm not. I'm, a, I'm not. A, I'm not a singer. Yeah. I'll, I'll be the first to say. I apologize. I got a question. Second, I said it first. Uh, you're better. No, than I said, me. but I said it with much more inflection and much that's, more uh, passion in that's my true. voice. That's so true. You've, so you've seen the band forty times. Have yes. the shows changed in like for you the experience, or is it still just like the first time you saw them? It's definitely changed. I mean, like I'm older and like more cynical. Now, in like some ways, like sometimes now, it's funny because like they do these marathon shows. They've kind of gotten into like the spirit of like Springsteen and playing these long marathon Three shows, hours. which I love. And they change the set list every night and they change love it on that. the fly. Which a lot of bands, like I saw Weezer last summer, and it's like they play twelve songs, they go off, they come back, they play two, and that's the show. And that's how most bands are. They're yeah. like, this is our set list for the tour. Maybe we'll switch out a last song. We'll put in something weird. But they're always throwing out weird covers and mixing it up. And then they know that. The fans, it's almost like Grateful Dead, where people will travel with the band, myself included, and it becomes like cunty. You'll read like the um, the thread. I go to the website all the time. What do you call it? PearlJam.com. They have yeah. the um, uh, like the community board and stuff, and there'll be this thing of like only two covers, only three songs from this album, and like it's there's a lot of cuntiness, if I can say cuntiness you can say with whatever it. Whatever you want, with uh, with it, but. Yeah, now it's like as I've gotten older, sometimes you're like, all right, we can cut out this song. Kind of let's, let's get out of here. I'm ready to go. Yeah, oh, old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like my legs hurt because they do the GA pit. And I, I've been in the fan club since 96, so I get pretty sweet tickets. Yeah. So sometimes you have like that GA pit and you got to stand for an hour before the show. <laughs> and I'm like, my fucking feet hurt. You know, <laughs> I'm like I'm ready. Like I'll sit on the floor during the encore because I'm like, I got to stretch out and shit. <laughs> And sometimes I'll rock out in a way that I'm stretching where I'm like kind of like fucking doing this weird shit. You got to see this. People and I'm like, I'm, I'm headbanging to like stretch out my neck. You know, I'm getting old. But um, yeah, the shows, I mean, they they're spiritual for me. Sure. I get fucking into it. I've brought my dad to three shows now or maybe four shows. How does he now. feel about it? My dad's a real quiet Straight laced guy. guy? He's, he, a, he's more straight laced than you are. I don't know about straight laced. I mean, he well, drinks. So he'll smoke pot, but he's like a he's like Boston Irish Catholic. He's a quiet guy. He doesn't give you much. So I'm always like a little. T- I'm like I hope he's enjoying this. And they play a lot of rare tracks and stuff. I'm like he definitely doesn't know this song. And some of it rocks harder. I mean, he's 60 years old. Yeah. So you know they play like spin the black circle. My dad's <laughs> not like he's like spin spin. <laughs> you know what I mean? But he is like oh I like record plays too. Yeah yeah. So like he I don't think he listens to the albums that much. But like you know I try to bond with my dad through stuff. Sure. And like my dad had me and my sister when he was really young. So he never got to go to a lot of. Rock show. He never went to any concert. His first concert was Pearl Jam with me in like 2010. And he was like self conscious that he'd be the oldest guy there. I'm like, no, no, they'll be old people. Because 91, people that are in their 30s are fucking 60 now, you know? So there are guys in there. And there's a lot of like classic rock guys that are like, they kind of carried that torch, that 70s rock, like you said. Like, they're so hugely Who influenced and Zeppelin. And so I think there's Neil a lot of young, guys. I mean, you can see oh, the yeah, influences yeah. that Pearl Jam wears on their. They wear it on their flannel, man. It's, oh, completely. It's, um, well, let's dive into the record. Okay? All right, let's get in there. Yeah. So it starts with Last Exit. Yeah. Uh, such a fucking banger. Peter, play the opening.
Once this kicks in, it's yes. like you know this is not your typical Pearl Jam record. Yes. Um, Top five Pearl Jam songs for me last night. Oh, it's, I, I love that. You know what's funny? I always get this one in Brain of Jay oh, yeah, mixed yeah. up, which similar I love. Similar openings, Very yeah. similar, just really pounding. You hear the punk rock influence. You know, this is a lot more rugged than anything they've put out before. Uh, the solo at a minute 57. Peter, play that shit. It's just too fucking good. But then it's dark. This song is so dark. Super um, dark. Yeah. It's, I mean, it, I mean, it's like a relationship coming apart to me. That's what it. What I love, like. my favorite lyrics are the are the opening. Lives open and trashed. Look, look ma, ma, watch, watch me, me crash. crash. I love that. It's like look ma, no hands. I fucking love that. Um, but this is really dark. Lives open and trash. Look ma, watch me crash. No time to question. Why nothing, nothing lasts. lasts. Grasp and hold on. We're dying fast. Soon to be over, and I will relent. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at soundtalentmedia.com and I'll see you there. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little, little taste of it right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work, but we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love or want to love or hate yeah imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that that uh has impacted your life uh and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week so triangulate your speakers think about jumping off the bed singing along dancing like an idiot and listen to extra grind podcast um yeah, I love that fucking tune. They're saying this isn't a song about Kurt Cobain. But the chorus, it, there's a reference. You know, let the ocean swell, dissolve away my past, three days and maybe longer. Won't even know I've left. And and to me, I mean, that's that's a flat out. It took, they, they Kurt Cobain, they had no idea how long he was there. They said at least three days, maybe longer. But it's a it's a song that I think is about suicide. It's even in the liner notes. Uh, Vetter had typewritten liner notes for the song, offering a grim addenda that isn't in the music. He writes, "If one cannot control his life, 
will he be driven to control his death, which is which is suicide. Right, right. Um, have you ever considered suicide? Personally, um, all the time. Not, but not, um, never like a legitimate, well, one time, uh, if I can go off on a... Go ahead, please, just talk, dude. Thing. I mean, I sort of, uh, a lot of the deep comedy fans are familiar with the story. I shit uh, in a girl's shoe one time in a blackout, drunk. I just fucking blacked out on like a first time hanging out with a girl it wasn't even a day it was like our first time hanging and i got way too drunk blacked out woke up i had taken a shit in her shoe and uh traipsed around the house i fell through like a, a coffee table yeah. like I, w- I just woke up and like the house was like destroyed there was my own fecal, fecal matter everywhere i mean it's like a funny story slash sad story and i had pissed on this woman's rug it was fucking horrible that was the only time in my life i woke up and i had a flight to seattle to go to the seattle comedy competition seattle ironically um and I missed the flight, and I was like, I felt like just a piece of shit. That was the only time where I was like, I should kill myself. It would be, I'd be doing a nice service to everybody if I fucking killed myself. But it was only like, uh, how old are you? Pretty fleeting. I'm 36 now. So no. then, oh, then I was, um, boy, that was eight years ago. So however, 2010, maybe 28. Yeah, I was 28. Um, but it was never like a thing of like, how am I going to kill myself? It was just like a, the lowest point in my life and a, a shame fucking felt like shit but not ne- never like a a genuine like i'm going to kill myself let me figure out how but definitely a lot of uh, i've had a lot of anxiety panic disorder where i'm like well how, it would be how, easier to fucking kill myself how dark has it gotten um not 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 as dark as a lot of people i mean i feel grateful for that but definitely uh i've had low points that was probably like the lowest point I would say, but again, it wasn't like a, I'm going to, I never thought like practically of like, how do I go about killing myself? Yeah. Just a fucking like, Oh God, I'm a piece of fucking garbage. Yeah. I, I, you know, I felt the same way when, when I lost my friend Angelo, <clears throat> I, I never have, I like, I've never thought about killing myself where I'm going to, you know, take a gun or hang myself. But I took drugs after Angelo died in, with the hopes that I'm just gonna overdose and be done, right, because right. I was so broken up how how the the love that I had for him to know that he was gone, and I mean I can't, you know I can't say that it's like that there weren't close moments, close calls because I knew how much I took, and there were definitely times I was short of breath, and and then I just like wake up and sleep like oh my god, and but it was it was dark man, and uh, I don't know if I ever could do that I. I Life is just so precious that that it's like you, there's there's so much even in the worst. Like I was trying to tell my mom today, it's like mom, it's just like even in the negativity, you gotta be positive. Like there's people that are far worse than you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's always for me like the arts, movies, music, stuff like that. Obviously, friends and relationships and family. Like there's stuff that's like don't do that because I have this. I can go listen to this or go to this show. Or you're robbing yourself of a lot of. Stuff, so obviously. much you can do, but I mean, there's like, but also like, I haven't been to that point where we got that dark. I understand like people that do commit suicide. It's not like I'll listen to people be like, "How oh, do you kill yourself?" Like Kurt Cobain or whatever. Like he had so much going on and he had everything, but you're like, "Yeah, but you don't understand where they were at mentally." You can yeah. get into fucking really dark, scary places. Yeah, and it's a it's a fucking struggle, especially when you get drugs and alcohol. And oh, hundred percent! It just completely clogs up your brain, and then you just you just like yeah, it's this is easy, and then you just do it, and who knows if you would have been sober, you might not have done it. Of course. What I love about this song, um, 
there's two parts of the album. We're going to talk about one later, but this one has one of the best moments in the album. Why? Why I think it's it's one of the best records on the 500 albums list. Um, Peter play when he screams, "Let my the build up," and then when he screams, "Let my spirit pass." Just that, this scream is so fucking powerful. It's definitely, like, Eddie is getting out something. Like, he really, all the bullshit he's been putting up with, all the privacy that's been taken away from, all the people studying him and copying him, he's just, like, getting it all out. And it's a powerful moment. Yeah, I was, it's funny, you you keep beating me up ahead of of, uh, a thought. But, yeah, that's, like, one of the best screams. And there's so many great Eddie screams, but that's one of them. And towards the end, yeah, exactly. It's just so fucking good, dude. And then towards the end, that, that's it! Uh, Last exit. It's just yeah. Play all of that, Peter, because it's so fucking good. Play the whole fucking song. Play the whole song. (laughs) Um, Well, let let's let our spirit pass to spin the black circle. God, I shouldn't do fucking segues because I'm just trying to stay cool, and that's definitely not one of them. Maybe cut that out, Peter. um, (laughs) Spin the black circle. It's a song about playing a record. Very simple uh, song, but it's just like you said. It's your dad. It's like it's punk rock. Yeah, uh, he's not hiding what this song is about. Pull it out, a paper sleeve. Oh my joy, only you deserve conceit. I'm so big, my world, my whole world. I'd rather you, rather you than her. So I, I, as I read, "Spin the Black Circle" is the first single released from this record. Yes, it which won is, a Grammy. Yeah, it did win a Grammy. But this is a record that romanticizes vinyl albums and laments their fading glory. The band actually released "Vitology" on vinyl two weeks. Before this record came out uh, in the industry standard CD and still popular, but a wane, but the waning cassette tape. So they put this out two weeks prior and to a testament to both the band and the first signal subject, the vinyl version of Vitology became the best selling vinyl release for 20 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. And upon the more conventional release, I was a, it was the second fastest selling album in history. The first fastest selling album was Pearl Jam's previous year's release versus right so do you miss being uh having music on like a tangible delivery medium you know oh definitely because when i was a kid i i would like consume the whole record the album whatever i mean i was a cd guy but like i would read all the liner notes the producers where it was recorded all that stuff and i feel like you don't have that anymore like now i listen to music and I don't even know the names of the song. Like I got really into Band of Horses. I got into so many bands. Band of Horses is great. Yeah, because they opened for Pearl Jam. So I met. I, I met. I got to know a lot of Ben Harper and the Innocent Criminals and uh, Band of Horses. All these bands that would Tenacious D, that would open for um, Pearl Jam. But now, like Band of Horses, like I've listened to all their albums. I know all the albums. But I don't even know the names of a lot of the tracks because it's just like you hit play. There's no fucking album to stare at and look look yeah. through and you, so you kind of lose the artwork and stuff so i definitely uh can it's like people like you used to like bring people over to your house like girls or whatever and be like what do you want to listen to look at my cd collection yeah, exactly. and it was something to be proud of yeah that totally. you went down to the record store and bought the cd listen to the record you got the fucking maybe because if you didn't have them in those binders but even those binders i was proud of can you be proud of an itunes collection it feels weird yeah there's nothing to look and now it's just streaming anyways yeah. you just have every album but Vitology was always a pain in the ass because it didn't fit into a lot of the um, the CD like racks and stuff because it was taller. Yeah, it was that like leathery fucking tall thing. 
and it would get fucked up because it was like a book. So it would yeah. be all dinged up and shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Remember they always had those alternative kind of releases like that. Remember the CD was in that big fucking plastic thing so you didn't steal it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was so big, you're like, ah, oh, Jesus Christ, I need a goddamn forklift to buy this Boys to Men record. And it's just like, it's, records are gone, are starting to come back now. Um, like, hipsters are all excited about record collections again. Like, doesn't it feel uh, anarchistically shallow? It's weird, and it's now like the second it's streaming is one, and records are two again. Like in the last few years, CDs have never been like lower, and uh, it's interesting too because I'm in New York. I live in New York, and like all these like classic record stores close, but now there's like this huge resurgence, and now people you can buy Vitology vinyl at fucking Urban Outfitters, which is just it's, that's not buying <laughs> records at Urban Outfitters. That makes me want to kill myself. The fact <laughs> that people go and buy, uh, you know, Black Sabbath at Urban Outfitters is <laughs> brutal. But um, yeah, Spin the Jack Black Circle kicks ass, but never one of my favorite songs for whatever reason. I love it and it kicks ass, but not one of my favorite on that uh, album. I mean, but it's I a very like it was simple. More popular. Yeah. It's very simple. But that brings us into Not For You. Now that one uh, is a. This is incredible. This yeah. is as good as it gets. Three chords. The whole song until the bridge. Right. Three chords. Like, this is the kind of music that I write. Like, when I'm playing around with uh, the guys from LMNOP, like, this is what. I write a three songs, just three chords. And, and what I love about it, it's it's a song about commercialism. And it seems not only to take the theme of Neil Young's like 80s swipe at that subject with this notes for you, because they're so heavily influenced by yeah. Neil Young, but it sounds like a crazy horse jam. And then that's also really funny that Neil Young uh, loved Pearl Jam so much that the following year he had them play as right. his backing band right. on Mirrorball. But cool notes about this song. People are saying this is this is still not a shout out to Kurt, but the band performed this on Saturday night, Saturday Night Live shortly after Kurt Cobain died. Right now, al- although the song had already been written, recorded, and performed, it already hadn't it hadn't been released yet. So they played it uh, on Saturday Night Live. Nobody has heard it before. But they got to do three songs yeah. on Saturday Night Live. Most people are doing two songs. Pearl Jam was so big, right. they let them do three songs on Saturday Night Live. Um, and some significance about this, on Eddie's guitar, on his headstock, he had the name Kurt, spelled K-U-R-D-T. Right. He had that. And, and at the end of the show, Eddie opened up his jacket to reveal a K right. over his heart. Um, have you ever gotten to hang out with any of your idols in a professional capacity? Uh, definitely. I mean, like, I know Louis is like a, a public enemy number one these days, but I mean, he was someone I idolized big time. We've become pretty close friends, and I got to do the whole tour with him. And a lot of a lot of comics like that uh, that I really looked up to that I've become friends with now. Do you still keep in touch with Louis? Yeah, I talked to him quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's a few like a lot of. I mean, I was such a comedy nerd that I idolized all these comics and then got to meet a lot of them. I actually got to meet Paul McCartney through uh, Louis and hung out with Paul McCartney for about 20 minutes one time, which was probably the most insane. I mean, that's celebrity. He, he was hanging meeting. out at the Hollywood Improv for like three comedy juices in a row. And, yeah, he was talking about that. I did a set, and as I well, he was in the audience, as I walked off, he just went, "Good set." And I was just <laughs> like, "Oh my god!" But this is what's funny about about. 
not for you. It's it's Eddie complaining about how youth is being sold and exploited by the music industry. And it's about, along with the blatant commercialization, Pearl Jam was so unnerved to learn about Ticketmaster and how Ticketmaster was basically price-gouging customers, leading to a widely publicized boycott of the company. Um, was there a situation in your career where you had felt like you'd been exploited or been in a situation where you had to check somebody and remind them not to? Huh. Um, no, I have no morals, really. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, I don't think so. I'm trying to, like, think. Not really. I mean, there's definitely, like, a lot of things in the business, obviously, that, like, oh, this feels a little dirty and yeah. weird. And um, there's definitely been moments where you're like, oh, I feel a little shameful doing this thing. But you, got, I mean, it's hard. You have to, like, it's hard to make big stances when you're at the position... That we're at. I've been yeah. In, yeah in my career, but I you're mean, doing you great. Bigger. I mean, you've you've had the half hour. You you've been you've done Letterman, which most people can say they can't say that anymore. Right. I mean, have you had those at moment where you feel like you've been taken advantage of? Um, definitely, like early on, like just in comedy, where you're like, we're paying you fifty bucks to drive to Presque Isle, Maine, and stuff like that. Yeah. But you're also like hungry to go perform anywhere. Sure. But um, not certainly not to this level, I don't think. But there's definitely a lot of comedic things we have to do that you're like ah oh, this is a little awkward but whatever tremor christ another one of my favorites uh best part in the song is when he harmonizes over himself at minute 205 play that shit peter This is the devil making its first Vitalogy appearance in this well-wrought allegory of a sailor imperiled by diabolical storms, uh, which is also filled with another ocean reference because fucking Eddie loves the ocean. Big surfer, yeah. Um, Ransom paid the devil. He whispers pleasing words. Triumphant are the angels if they can get there first. Beautiful lyrics. <clears throat> yeah, I feel like he was hitting his stride lyrically at this point. Definitely. Sure. And vocally. Oh, completely. But definitely not one of the more powerful songs on the record, uh, in my opinion. There's a few throwaways. I think this is kind of one of them. Oh, really? See, yeah. I, this is one of my favorite tracks on the. Uh, really? On the Why album. is it yeah. one of your favorites? I think it's so uh, different and it sounds almost like sloppy with just that, like, bump, 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 bump. It's not a bad song. I'm not saying it's a bad song. I just, there's, it's weird about this record with me. Is Dude, I love Pearl Jam. I am not, audience, I know there's some diehard Pearl Jam fans out there. You are one of them. I am not putting this band down. I I fucking love this band. It, it just some of these songs just feel like they were thrown together, right? And this seems like one of them. And now it's definitely not like you know, Pry to or yeah, there's uh, a Foxy map handle. Yeah, yeah, there's there's, there's there. definitely not one of those. It's a good song, um, but it's uh, but it's just it comes to what's on the record is not one of my favorites. Right. Now then you go into Nothing Man. Yes. Um, now, in a 1994 interview with L.A. Times, Eddie Vedder stated, the idea uh, is about if you love someone and they love you, don't fuck up because you are left with less than nothing. Now, this is something of like a male side of Better Man, and it's a ballad about a guy who messed up big time and lost his love. Um, was there a relationship or a situation 
that you mismanaged thinking you deserve better only to realize that you may have been the been had the best situation for you it's hard because i've only really i feel like had breakups basically two that it felt like it wasn't through a fault of my own like my high school love like we, we dated in high school and What's then her name steph 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 with an f and she went Steph to, with an F. Steph with an F. I still love you. Uh, actually, her <laughs> her brother is my best friend. We're, oh, really? We were friends beforehand. Yeah, he was like my best buddy. And I started dating his. He went. He was a year older than me, and she was a year younger. And then he went away to college, and I started dating his sister, which was awkward for a moment, which is always weird when you start dating your friend's sister. However, you want your sister to date someone good. So why not have him date your best friend? Sure. You know I'm a good guy. Completely. So we ended up working. We worked it out fine. But she just like went to college. I didn't. I was doing comedy. I was 18. So it was more of like it was like heartbreaking. But it was also like, yeah, that makes sense. I'm living at my parents' house. I'm doing comedy with a bunch of old men. I'm an open mic comic. And you're going to college. So that was like heartbreaking. But it wasn't like anything I could have done. Still just as heartbreaking. And then uh, later I had a relationship with a woman left me. She went to, uh, she was also young. I, I get very attracted to really independent women. Shoes on my feet, I bought them. Shoes <laughs> on my feet, I bought them. Things I'm wearing. Ladies, it ain't easy being independent. <laughs> Question. Um, so that's like what I'm attracted to. But I realized later in life, you have to find really independent women that have already gone out and traveled and found themselves in sure. the world. So they still have that personality, but they're not going to leave you. Completely. So I had that with the, the second girl that I was really madly in love with, and she like was moved to South America. So it wasn't like something like, oh, I fucked this up. Uh, it was just like the way it goes. But still, just as heartbreaking, I would go into Nothing Man. <laughs> that was like always my go-to breakup song, and still touches that that nerve, that is, sweet. Is that your cry song? Uh, yeah, it definitely is a sense. It's also like this thing of like what I could have been, could have been something, Nothing Man. Uh, should have been something, could have been something he throws in there. Uh, it definitely, we all can relate to fucking up, certainly. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> right. 100%. You're not alone in this. Yeah. But yeah, and it was also, like I said, it was kind of the first Pearl Jam battle. There's nothing really like that on 10. Like, releases on 10 and Versus has, like, you know, Small Town on there, but not this, like, kind of like, almost like a power ballad. Yeah, thing. There's, a, it's very, there's two of them on here, which is incredible. This yeah. is almost like a side piece to Better Man. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's beautiful. It is a beautiful song, and it's something that's so weird to have that come after hearing, you know, three songs that are just fucking like just you have last exit then fucking spin the black circle and then uh, not, not for, for you. you and and then it's like here we are and then it's just this beautiful love song but then they bring you right back right to the fucking shit with with whipping yes. which is just uh actually that was the fourth song so there was still there were four like hardcore songs and then you had better man kicks in with whipping uh the lyrics to whipping are written on a copy of a petition to Bill Clinton against pro-life right. killings of abortion doctors. Right. They wear their, their... This is what I love about Pearl Jam is that they fucking tell you what they stand for. Yeah, I always felt that way. And like I remember when um, Dixie Chicks had their thing uh, where they said they were ashamed to be American or whatever and everyone started burning their records. And they kind of like... Um, and I, I respect them and all that. But they kind of like apologized and kind of backpedaled a little bit. And I was like, well, here's this band that's like... Just being like, hey, fuck you. This is what we are, and this is how we feel and stuff, which I kind of always respect. There's never been an amount of like, well, maybe we shouldn't have said that. We feel weird. They don't give a fuck, uh, which I always liked about them. And like I said, it, it shaped my politics when I was a kid because I was like, oh, all right. I would start listening to him at shows and in the lyrics and stuff and being like, 
Yeah, yeah, I'm going to be anti-gun. I'm pro-choice. Yeah, well, what I, that's kind of what I like about them is that they're, I mean, they, they're very to the left. You know, they're, they're a leftist band. Yeah. But, but they are definitely, I mean, I, I'm from the left. You know, I, I, I just think that it's like, it's good that, to have something to stand for. And the whipping and whipping is a powerful song, you know. Fuck yeah! Don't mean to push, uh, but I'm, I'm being, being shoved. shoved. I love that fucking line. Um, not gonna ask you about abortions, but the question is: Have you ever had your ass whipped? Uh, ask like like you mean like sexually or just uh, you can take it there. I would say more of a fight. But... Um, I've been in one fight in my life, one real fight, and that was in fifth grade with Jeff Meehan, who was my best friend. And we started talking about who would win in a fight. And uh, I got we, we were like, all right, let's go fight. And he punched me once in the head really, really well. And yeah. it hurt. And I was like, what are we doing? I don't want to fight. And uh, I'm not interested in being uh, punched. But I've definitely felt uh, rage and anger. And wanted, I wish I could fight. Nowadays, it's too dangerous to fight because people are trained fighters. Yeah, there's a lot of MMA tell. motherfuckers. Yeah, Some guy like, knows fucking uh, Taekwondo Jiu-Jitsu fucking... Take yeah. you down and Muay Thai your ass. I feel that way with comics. I'll see comics respond to hecklers like, hey, shut your mouth, you fucking piece of shit. And I'm like, dude, I hope you can handle yourself because you're. A, this is real life. That guy can come fucking kick your ass. Um, but you no. had, Have you had any clo- close situations on stage where you thought something was about to go off? Not really. I remember one time years ago when I was young, like a couple years in, I was like 20, and I was some guy was heckling, and I was kind of shitting on him, and I was like, oh, this guy's going to kick my ass after the show. And I had a buddy in the crowd like sitting over here, and he was like, no, he isn't. And then they started to kind of look at each other, and they kind of got into it, and they ended up working it out fine. But I'm not a, uh, I don't really, I'm not a combative or confrontational guy in life in general. And so, in comedically, I always just go, "Hey, could you stop? You're kind of, you're, you're frustrating me." And usually, yeah. people, a lot of times, if you handle it that way, people will go, "Oh, fuck, sorry." If you're yeah. really genuine, that's how I'd rather handle it. And uh, I don't drink anymore. I've always just tried to avoid fights and uh, physicality because I'm not a I get it. Imposing figure. But this song, again, this is like one of those songs you go to, and that's where I would take out Ray in my fucking bedroom listening to this song and fucking bouncing off the walls. I mean, this is a fucking straight punk song. Yeah, this is a straight punk rock song. And it fucking rips. Definitely rips. Uh, That goes into Pry 2, which is just him saying privacy is priceless to me. But what's cool about this is this is the beginning of Side 2, on the black circle. So when this on this was on the record release, which then brings you into one of Pearl Jam's biggest hits right. for fans. I don't know if commercially it was such a big hit, but Corduroy, it, it's just so fucking powerful. I can still remember driving down to Ocean City listening to this, and it's about somebody. I read I read this online. It's about one person's relationship with millions, right? Because this is Eddie basically. Is about a thrift store jacket that Eddie wore when the band was just getting famous. And it was copied and sold as a high-end garment after grunge became a fashion statement for people who weren't even necessarily fans of the genre. Totally. Um, now, you dress nicely on stage, to, for the most part. Yeah. Um, as a Pearl Jam super fan, did you ever go through a? You said you went through a grunge period. Yeah, well, I mean, just musically, but I never. I kind of joke about this. There's no real photos of me growing up where I'm like, oh man, I had my head shaved or I pegged my pants or I wore whatever. I've basically worn jeans and sneakers 
I've had the same outfit and Me haircut too. 100% of my life. I've had t-shirt hair, and jeans and Hair sneaker. not so much, dude. I've been wearing t-shirt and jeans with boots since fucking ninth grade. Yeah, like as much as I would get into different genres of stuff, I never like adapted it clothing-wise or style-wise. Um, I've always kind of had the same. Like, Flannels? Picture me in eighth grade. No, I never got into flannel. I never wore corduroy. It just seemed weird. I've always been a jeans t-shirt guy but it's similar to like talking about selling records at urban outfitters yeah like they would started to have like corduroy jackets for 300 bucks like the eddie vetter line yeah i mean that's basically him which is which is kind of you know i don't i'm not putting down pearl jam when i say this but it's just like like there do you consider pearl jam to be kind of a bunch of of this whining a little bit. It's like, dude, they're, they had their multimillionaires. People will buy all of their records. People are obsessed with this band and they're like upset about it, about the fame. I mean, for, just like we skipped over privacy. I understand that the idea of be wanting a, a life of like, of just being able to do things that you want to do, but it's like, you know, is that is is? Do you think that's right to be so upset about it? Well, I mean, it's hard to argue with someone's feelings, I guess. Um, but I think also, like, they got together. People forget, or maybe they don't forget, but like, they were together such a short period of time before being the biggest band in the world. It's like they didn't start together in eighth grade and then twenty years later blow up. They had been in all kinds of different bands, but like when they became Pearl Jam, within like a year, they were like the biggest band in the world. And I think Eddie sort of oddly resented it for whatever reason and it became like pop music which is not what they were kind of no, going for yeah. you know um so i understand i mean like different things af- affect people differently and it's weird to all of a sudden be thrown into that kind of fame and i always respected and liked that that they kind of very rarely in entertainment do people kind of like pull back to become less famous it feels like like they stopped doing interviews they stopped putting pictures of themselves in the bands they stopped doing uh videos yeah and they kind of like cut the audience their fandom in half down to like these hardcore people like myself that go to all these shows and i bring it up all the time people kind of laugh about pearl jam or at pearl they're like oh i remember pearl jam that that old band they're still touring and you're like yeah yeah they sell out fucking everywhere they did four stadium shows this year this summer so i i always love that and respected that that it's now it's become they kind of try to make it more like this almost like underground cool i get it thing what i love about corduroy is like I was talking about best moments of the album. I think the the mo- the bridge in Corduroy is uh, is why this album is on the 500 greatest albums. It is so fantastic. Play two minutes zero seconds in and just play that entire part. Everything has changed. Absolutely nothing's changed. Take my hand, not my picture. Spilled my tincture, which I think most people fuck up. I thought for so long it was spilled my T-shirt. It's just, it's such a powerful fucking moment. And it it just, as soon as I hear it, it just takes me back. And and I love this song so goddamn much. Speaking of fucking up those lyrics, uh, a friend of mine, we were, me and my friends were all huge Pearl Jam guys. I'm the only one in a group that didn't get a Pearl Jam tattoo because I'm not a tattoo guy. But we were all obsessed. But my one buddy, his quote, his yearbook quote, he had it wrong. He has, everything has changed. Absolutely nothing's changed. And that's like his quote. We were like, no, it's chains, man. (laughs) You fucked up. (laughs) 
I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to Something About the Beatles, now on Evergreen and wherever you get your podcasts. radio stations in America. Profiles, The Wrath of the Buzzard, P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. Um, and another funny Pearl Jam story, uh, mis- misunderstanding the lyrics. Back then, you couldn't Google. You just had to figure it out. There was nothing. You had to figure it out. Yeah. And uh, I had a friend that went to a Pearl Jam show, and he wanted to request the song State of Love and Trust, and he wrote on his T-shirt, Stay to love and trust. He thought the song was Stay to Love and Trust, which that one, I'm like, that's the title of the song, man. Just look at like, the goddamn album. Yeah, exactly. So that was a big fuck up. But um, this, this song is also like one of their most played live songs. I think they play it almost every show. And now they used to do a slow one and go right into a rock. And now they'll play like three slow songs and go into a rock. And this is usually the first one that kind of like signalizes, okay, it's time to fucking Let's party again. kick it in. Yeah, and it, it's, it's definitely, it's, it's right after... You know, something so, so just like a mishbagosh of noise, and then Corduroy comes in, and the second, just play when it kicks in, Peter. I mean, just, I don't know the words to it, but it's, I love it so goddamn much. And then it, they follow that up with bugs. And I remember when. Yeah, you hate bugs. I don't, I just. <laughs> I don't hate it. It's just it's it's Eddie's playing a lot of instruments on this album. This is the first album that Eddie started playing guitar on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eddie bought a accordion at a thrift store, and and then he does this song, which I found out it's about the annoyance of the media. Okay, uh, but let's take it down to the most basic, uh, the basic basic roots of it. You know, I got bugs in my room, bugs in my bed, bugs in my ears. They're eggs in my head. Um, have you ever gotten bugs? Literal bugs? Whatever interpretation. You <laughs> um, take it. I've had. I mean, I've, I live in New York, so there's always roaches uh, in my home. But I get um, it. I was just saying more like on your body or any. Have you ever had like any sicknesses or, no, or anything like that? No, I had ringworm uh, once in high school. All my my best friend was a wrestler. They all had ringworm, and so we would. I had ringworm once, but any that was... sexually transmitted diseases? Oh, big time! I got herpes. If that, if you want, there you <laughs> go. Is That's that the bug we're talking bugs, about, dude. Oh, yes. all right. I didn't understand. Uh, I have cockroaches <laughs> and herpes, both things, and I set traps for both of them. Um, yeah, I got all kinds of herpes. There's you know, just one kind. Really. Do you know how you got herpes? I do. Well, I, I, it's one of two women. I had sex with a woman who told me she had herpes right before, and we fucked. No condom. So very likely her. But then there was another woman. I didn't have an outbreak for like six months. Um, and then I was having sex with another woman 
who I might have gotten it from her too. But I had sex with one woman that was like, I have herpes, and then we had sex anyways. She told me uh, right as we were both naked, like fooling around about to fuck, which is the best time to tell somebody because no one's turning back at that point. No man. You're in, dude. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I don't. You could tell me you have a Venus flytrap in your vagina. Yeah. I'm going to have sex with you. And by the way, herpes not that bad if you have it. Really? Yeah, it's not so bad. I mean, the first outbreak was horrific. I mean, you talk about there was. It was a lot of bugs. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was a nightmare. I wouldn't work. Bugs on your skin. Yeah. <laughs> bugs on your, dick, your head of your dick. Um, yeah, it was a nightmare. But now, you know, I take medicine. I control it. No outbreaks. My wife never got it. So that's good. Fuck yeah, dude. Satan's bed. It's I'll a, never suck Satan's dick. No, never suck Satan's dick. But it's about not cheating and sleeping in Satan's bed. Have you ever slept in Satan's bed? Now, what, now what do you mean by that exactly? I don't know. Whatever way, like, have you... Uh, you know, ever uh, cheated on a girl? Have you ever uh, gone nope. to the gone to the dark side to get sex? Or I've never cheated, but I've had sex with women that I didn't like a lot. Like I had, uh, like a, I've done like a, a summer of regular sex with a person. And I'm like, I don't even really like this person. She doesn't like me, and this is like a a weird thing. But you, you know, you want to get laid, and they want to get laid. So I guess you're like you're serving each other in need, I guess, but definitely situation where I'm like, I shouldn't be doing this and this is not, I'm not into this and yeah. I'm drinking too much and fucking and I want a relationship. And So I don't know if that qualifies, but definitely I've had sex where I'm like, in the middle of it, you're like, what the fuck am I doing? What here? am I doing? A lot of drunk sex, blackout sex, that kind of shit. Did anything happen in Key West? Uh, no, well, Key West before <laughs> Key West, Miami, uh, my friend and I, Tom, Dustin, and I, we went down to Miami. We're on our way to Key West. We went to Miami first. We were walking around South Beach in, you know, New Balance sneakers and jeans like fucking assholes. <laughs> and these two women that I think ended up being ladies of the night, but they were just these two women came up to me, African-American gals, and they were like, hey, you want to party with us, buddy? And I was like, fuck yeah. I thought, I thought, but genuinely, I was like, I'm just fucking ripping it. I'm like, I'm a sexy guy here. <laughs> And so these, I got the new balance on. Yeah, man. yeah. So these two women were like, hey, do you want to come party? And I was like, fuck yeah. And they started like, you know, rubbing me and grabbing my cock. And I was like, this is great. I was like, let's go to my hotel. And they were like, sure, sugar. And uh, I was like, I got to find my friend. And they were like, no, no, he's fine. He's with our other friend. And I was like, oh, all right, great. So we went into my hotel room with these two women. And one, they were like, lay down on, your, on the bed. And uh, one was just like smushing her tits in my face. And the other one was kind of like touching my cock over the jeans. And I was like, this is fun. This is like a threesome. I'm like fully clothed. They're fully clothed except for the breasts. And she just kept sticking her tits in my face. And I was like, woo. And then all of a sudden they both were like, all right, well, we got to go. We got to get out of here. And I was like, what are you talking about? We haven't even had sex yet. They left. And I was like, well, that was fucking weird. And I looked over and I had like a duffel bag. It was like my suitcase at the time and i had no debit card so i had all i had a thousand dollars in cash and i looked over in the the zipper the pouch where my cash was was just open and immediately i was like oh fuck and a hundred percent of my money was gone oh and they just took my money and then oh in the middle of it i forgot this part my friend tom came in the room and he's like i just got robbed i got no money and i was like who gives a fuck i was like look at this we got fucking two broads in the room and then he left looking for his money. And it turns out the third lady was like, would blew him. He at least got a blowjob out of it. And sure. she was going through his pockets while she was blowing him. And so then he came back and he's like, I lost 500 bucks. I, lost, I was like, I lost 1,000. We lost all of our money day one of vacation. And uh, he was like, yeah, those are fucking working girls that fucking steal your oh, money. Oh, they work the fuck out of y'all. Oh, I mean, they like, 
they must have been so pumped. I feel like they went home early. They were like, we just got 1500 <laughs> Let's get out of here. And, uh, Night off, baby. And uh, I ended up giving like this big fucking like Rudy-inspired speech the next day because I was like, fuck it, man. I was like, if they need our money, they can have our money. And I had like my aunt wire me money. And uh, for years, I was like, whenever I looked at my account, my finances, I would always add a thousand dollars. I was like, I should have a thousand forty-eight right that now. Before, yeah. And if it was like ten years of that, um, but yeah, that was. I don't know if that counts as Satan's bed, but I mean, no, it kind of does. That's 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 you know, fucking around with uh, with uh, you know, ladies in the night, not right. having idea. Satan's bed is just the idea of just. Of just you know going for out for sex and doing it in a mischievous way, I assume, and I think that kind of equals that. Yeah, certainly. It's and a I, great I, story. I spent a lot of time in strip clubs in Montreal in my youth before I turned twenty. I lived in Boston, so I'm from Massachusetts. So I'd go up to Montreal all the time to see Pearl Jam. Actually, one of the times. Yeah. And then we would always go to strip clubs and such and do all that kind of thing. But I never got to have sex with any. I wasn't a smooth guy. Very smooth. Oh uh, yeah, now I'm smooth as a baby's asshole. But smooth uh, <laughs> as a baby's asshole. Uh, then we go into Better Man. Yes. Um, thoughts on Better Man? I mean, you're as an avid fan, you probably heard this song at least forty times live. They probably played it every show, almost every show, probably. But yeah, it's one of those ones though. I feel like a hack because I'm such a Pearl Jam nut, but it is in probably my top five or top ten Pearl Jam songs. I just love it, and it's brought on like new meaning. They live, they'll break it down. They, a lot of times they'll play Save It for Later. Yeah. In the middle of that breakdown and stuff, and they'll do a lot of. Um, that kind of call and response, whoa, that kind of oh, thing. That's and it gets, yeah, and it gets really fun. They make it like a nine-minute version, but like it sounds like kind of like a pop song. It's a radio-friendly song, but live, they fucking jam it uh, out they, for ten it's, minutes. Yeah, and it's, it's where insane. It's where he throws the tambourines usually. Yeah, yeah, and they'll uh, they'll kind of get together and just fucking really rip it. And to me, this is the first album that features an organ on it too and uh, they got that organ going on that and it's just a fucking great song and you can really like the live versions especially I'll put on headphones and really you can key into like each there's an acoustic guitar like Stone shredding an acoustic McCready's doing his fucking he's just wailing then the organ's going and it's just an unbelievable song probably the most famous uh, beginnings to any songs it's one of the most recognizable ones at least Peter play the beginning just those chords that that boom it's just so fucking beautiful. The The cool story is that this was uh, a song that he wrote years ago. Yes. Like he wrote this was, as a kid. Uh, I read Eddie Vedder said, sometimes I think of how far I've come from the teenagers sitting on the bed in San Diego writing Better Man and wondering if anyone would ever hear it. Right. And then Eddie and then Brendan O'Brien said to Vedder, who was reluctant to record the song with Pearl Jam and, and Brendan O'Brien was like, this is a fucking hit. It's just incredible. Uh, and Better Man is obviously about abuse. And um, mm-hmm. you, you know, you've become a better man. And, I, and you, were told, you told me that you, you've become sober. What, what was it that kind of got you to want to change and become a better man? Just, uh, I mean, I drank for so long and so hard for so long, and I was just broke. And um, was there a bottom? It was hard. I feel like I had a couple. I, I feel bad sometimes. Not bad, but sometimes I feel like my bottom is not as horrific as so many people. But um, shitting in the girl's shoe was bad, and I ended up drinking that night. I kept drinking for a couple years, getting herpes. Uh, there was a lot of stuff, and being in a lot of relationships that I wasn't into or wasn't great and I was in the relationship with my wife when I was still drinking and it was fine like I never hit her or cheated or anything like that but it was just like I didn't feel um, 
a closeness to a lot of people, and I just I was failing as a comedian. I felt, and uh, I just hated myself. It was just a deep fucking uh, hatred for myself. And I always knew I was gonna have to quit. I mean, alcohol is not. If you drink the way I was drinking, I mean, if you have a couple cocktails, that's great. But you were blackout. Yeah, I would blackout quite a bit, and there's always. I realized in my twenties, for about ten years, I was either drunk or hungover or drinking a hundred percent of the time. Like I was just in a fog, and. Um, yeah, I just fucking was like, I gotta, I gotta change. Um, Mike McCready is got sober, and I would, you know, I really related to a lot of that. McCready does um, like speeches, like he he got some award, like um, he he's just very, I think, active in his sobriety. Yeah, all those um, guys, they're an amazing group. It, it's just so incredible. It's it really is a perfect song on this record, and it's so different than everything. Maybe Nothing Man, but I think it's just. It's so powerful, and it's one of those songs, just the lyrics. I love it. Yeah, it's. I, I think it's one of the best rock songs ever. I really do. Really? Yeah. One I, of the best ever. I really do, and uh, yeah, it's it's fucking amazing. I mean, just, it's so, the the where it really kicks in is like talking to herself. There's no one else that needs to know she tells herself. Well, here it comes. <laughs> Memories back when she was bold and strong and waiting for the world to come on, come on over. Where she knew and now she swears he's gone. This is, this is why I can't do your the goddamn comedy jam. I get too excited. I get ahead of myself. You know what? If if we do another festival, will you will you do this and then I'll and then I'll help sing it with you because everybody's gonna sing this. Okay, I try. I'd love to have you. I think you're. I, I think I messaged you when I saw your half hour. It was just, I think you're one of the funniest people oh, I've ever Oh, thanks, met. man. I and appreciate it. I used to rip it in karaoke, but karaoke, you have the time cue, which helps. I always end up getting ahead of myself because I get so pumped up. You know, something about this song is one that people will know all the words to. Yeah. People know this song. All right. Skipping Aya Devita, just a jam, and then more Immortality. Yes. Any thoughts on Immortality? Um, love it. Fucking beautiful, dark song. And uh, recently at one of the shows, I don't know if it was Seattle or Boston, he sang like alternate lyrics like these uh, to it, which is exciting. That's like one of those these Pearl Jam nerd things. You're like, he's singing alternative lyrics, man. Yeah. <laughs> like, so that was like a big moment. Immortality uh, is, you know, I don't give a fuck what anybody says. I mean, I know Eddie Vedder has, has said uh, this isn't about Kurt Cobain. Right. Um but it's just there's too many comparisons. In an interview with the Los Angeles Times, Eddie Vedder addressed the song saying about all the little references were just shit he was going through. The cigar box was simply where he kept his tapes and asked if this was a song about Cobain. He says, no, uh, that was written when we were on tour in Atlanta. It's not about Kurt. Nothing on this album was written directly about Kurt, and I don't feel like talking about him because I... It might seem like exploitation, but I think there might be some things in the lyrics that you could read into and maybe will answer some questions or help understand the pressures of someone who is on a parallel train. Hmm. Um, Kurt Cobain, you know, I think they became friends as he was still alive, um, obviously, because it couldn't happen in his death. But but um, Kurt Cobain kind of didn't have a lot of respect for Pearl Jam right off the top. He yeah. Thought, he thought they shouldn't solo. He was like, you know, you're not grudge, you're not rock. There's too many solos in it. Yeah, it's. Yeah, I mean, it also seems like a really fucked up guy. Obviously, like Kurt uh, is a fucking 
heroin addict and struggling with shit. So, you know, I feel like it was very hurtful to Eddie from what I understand of, of Red and everything. And yeah. I think there's a lot of people still that are like Nirvana people and so they hate Pearl Jam because Kurt said so fucking 25 years ago or whatever. But, but, um, you but know. Kurt called Pearl Jam. Let me go back to that. Kurt called Pearl Jam. He says they are a safe rock band. They are p- a pleasant rock band that everyone likes. And I think for someone like Kurt that was so anti everything it seemed like it's just i could see where he was because i'm dude i'm telling you like my friends were like you have to like nirvana you can't like pearl jam and i was like how can you i remember there was another kid that used to hang out around our group and smoke pot with us and he was he loved pearl jam and we all made fun of him and like i just don't understand that now yeah and that happens now like i said people will still make fun of me and stuff and be like oh yeah that band from the 90s or whatever but you just have to go yeah i just can't uh it's it's not worth trying to uh explain or express i've stopped trying to kind of be like yeah but if you heard this or whatever it's just like well that's special to me and a bunch of other people a couple million other people a couple million but um you know that's the way it goes people people hate but yeah it's a fucking amazing song I, i completely agree with you um in a great and powerful way to end the record. It does, to me, kind of sound like a Nirvana song. It doesn't sound like Pearl Jam, but yeah. uh, but I think it, it's it's definitely... This whole album is about death and, and fighting, you know, uh, the entertainment industry and just, um, just being, like, isolated in this world where everybody's staring at you. And so I think Immortality is, is probably the perfect way to end this record. Yeah, I mean, it's a really fucking dark record. I mean, you've got, like... Uh, a physical abuse, relationship abuse, and uh, suicide, obviously, and like a lot of uh, angst, certainly. And that they're in a fucking weird spot in their career and lives, and uh, completely, they fucking nailed it. All it's right, an amazing I, record. You want to do some facts? Yeah, sure. These facts and said you don't want some facts. <laughs> Can't find some better facts. Can't find some better facts. Tensions within the band had dramatically increased by this time. Producer Brendan O'Brien said Vitalogy was a little strained. I'm being polite. There was some imploding going on. Bassist Jeff Ament said that communication was at an all-time low. Drummer Dave Abruzzi stated that the communication problem started once Stone Gossard stopped acting as the band's mediator. Yeah. According to Gossard, Vitalogy was the first album in which lead vocalist Eddie Vedder made the final decisions. And at that time, Gossard thought of quitting the band. Right. Gossard said that the band was having trouble collaborating, so most of the songs were developed out of jam sessions. Jam sessions. He added that 80% of the songs were written 20 minutes before they were recorded. Wow. Did you know that? Uh, I knew some of that. I knew this was the first one where it definitely, like, because it was Stone's band, and it was his band beforehand, and he sort of always led the band back before Eddie was even around, and, uh, like, Mother Love Bone and Green River and all that shit. And uh, it was definitely a situation, I think, where Eddie was bringing in songs and being like, these are going to be the songs. And he started playing guitar, obviously. And um, I know they were, fuck- I think they were going to break up. Abrazizi left the band right after that, or they, they yep. kicked him out of the band. And uh, Eddie was really struggling with all that success and shit and didn't want to be this big band. And um, I think what they said in the, in the Pearl Jam 20 is that going on tour with Neil kind of saved it. Really? Yeah, like Neil was like, "Hey, come with me, come tour with me, and we'll we'll fucking do this." And then seeing the way he kind of operated and did shit, and I know he was like a huge influence, huge, and inspiration. Yeah. They call I him mean, Uncle Neil. Completely. Um, speaking of what you just said, 
They also fired their drummer, Dave Abruzzi, who played on the previous release Verses. After the initial recording sessions for Vitalogy, he was replaced by Jack Irons, previously of Red Hot Chili Peppers and L.A. Local Legends 11. He was actually asked to play in the first pre-Eddie version of Pearl Jam when they were still called Mookie Blaylock. So Jack was still was asked to do that, but he he turned it down so he could stay in this band eleven. He was actually the guy who introduced Eddie to Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard. Right. Okay, was there a pivotal moment where someone handed you that Mookie Blaylock demo? Yeah, I don't know. I I just feel like um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I remember uh, early on, Gary Gullman was like, "I'm gonna." He saw me, and I, I, he was like my idol at the time too, or an idol. And he was like, I'm going to get your tape to my manager. And then uh, I never did it (laughs) because I was like fucking 20. I was an idiot and I never got a tape I liked. But I don't know. It feels like comedy is so much more uh, less collaborative. And there's not like those moments that just fucking change things that change the course of your history as much. Um, Because it's such like a solo endeavor, it feels like. But no, I don't. do Do you have a pivotal moment in your career? I think, well, there is another one that also involves Gary Gullman, actually. Yeah, I guess I do, and actually. Here's my real answer. When I was, I was still drinking, and I was, like, really struggling. I had no money and no work. I was featuring here and there on the road, and I just couldn't figure it out. And I asked Gullman, because I knew him, and I was like, can we get together? I want to really, like, pick your, one of these pick-your-brain things. And we met in Central Park, and I was like, basically what I was asking for is, like, could you help me? Could you get me a manager, an agent? That's, like, what I was kind of, like, saying sure. without asking. And then he kind of just gave me almost nothing. He's like, you got to just put your head down, write, and listen to sets, and just don't worry about what everyone else is doing, and just kind of focus. And at the time, I remember being mad and being like, what an asshole. Yeah, yeah, just work harder. Fuck off. And then I remember leaving and being like, all right, maybe I will try. Let me just try that. I'll try to put my head down and focus on getting better only, because that's the only thing you can control, which he's always said to me. It's the one thing you can control. And then shortly after that, I got sober, also with Gary, I was like hanging out with him on a weekend and he was like, I was like, I think I got to try to get sober. And he's like, kind of encouraged me. But I do pinpoint a lot of my success to that kind of meeting in Central Park with him and him just being like, you got to just focus on yourself and can control what you can control. And then getting so- sober shortly after that. I All mean, the success I've had has come in sobriety. Completely. The, the, the best thing somebody ever said to me was... Uh, Gerard Carmichael said to me after I did New Faces and I was just comparing everybody else's uh, career that went to New Faces with me, like Pete Davidson and Santino and and uh, like Parna. And I was like, I was like, why are they doing all this? And I can't do this. And then he was like, he's like, dude, you got to look at your own paper. Yeah. Don't take your own test, man. Like, you know, the answers just fucking take your own test and you'll be fine. Yeah, so that was definitely a big moment. And there's been a lot of little things like that. I mean, with comedy and show business in general, it feels like there's so many little things that even at the time you don't recognize it as being like so important. Um, Completely. But yeah, I, I, a lot of it's taking care of stuff away from comedy and show business. Sobriety, meditation, therapy, those things have all changed my TM? life. TM? No, just, TM? Just, just regular M. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just do, just um, no. I never did TM, but I've I've heard amazing things. But I'm a big Thich Nhat Han guy and yeah. uh, Tara Brock and Jack Cornfield and all that shit. I love it. Yeah, I I've been doing trans. Uh, keep calling. Wanted to call it transitional meditation, transcendental meditation. I've been doing that for a year. Oh no, nice. and that's completely just saved my life. Yeah. I was such a miserable person, um, 
and then I uh, I had a friend who who's a pretty big rock star, and she she just took me to this guide, and he he just I, I got into meditation through him, and then I started doing a bunch of reading, and and I stopped caring about what other people wanted me to do. Like I always bring up just for laughs, where I was so bummed out because I they were just like we don't know what to do with you, and then. And then I just focused on trying not to be me for so long. And then I, I was like, I just want to lean into me. And that was when the jam was created. And then even more, when it came to straight stand-up, I just was like, I am. this is who I am. I'm going to cuss. I might say dirty shit. I'm not going to try to be another comic. Right. And the second I started writing jokes for myself, that's when my career started taking off even more as a stand-up. Yeah. And it's just all you can do is just push forward as you. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the One Hit Thunder or were nothing more than a one hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. Yeah, and the closer you get to being yourself on stage and off, the better you are uh, as a person in life. I had a similar experience with Just for Last where I did New Faces and I fucking ate it. I remember I called Colin Quinn, who's a friend of mine, not to name drop. And I remember being like, dude, I just blew my opportunity. I fucking ate it. And he was just laughing. He's like, that's great. He's like, that's hilarious. He's like, fuck it. Who cares about the industry? He's like, it's five minutes. He's like, who's going to judge you off of five minutes? Yeah. And he was like literally laughing. He's like, that's funny. He's like, that means you're a real comic. And it kind of g- gave me perspective. And then I was talking to another guy that I did new faces with who had a hard time, too. And I was like, yeah, I called Quinn. And he's like. You called Colin Quinn? He's like, that's better than anything you can get from here. You're just on a call basis. And I was like, yeah, I guess I got it pretty good. And there's a lot of, like, there's so many moments like that in life, any business, where you think, like, that was my big chance. I I blew it or whatever. And then you're like, no, nothing. There's no one chance. All right, here we go. One of the key bands in the grunge movement in the early 1990s, over the course of the band's career, its members became noted for their refusal to adhere to traditional music industry practices, including refusing to make proper music videos or give interviews or engaging in a much-publicized boycott of Ticketmaster. Uh, what are the, your least favorite parts of the entertainment industry? Um, hmm... My least favorite part is I mean trying to get a tape and stuff like that and trying to impress people that aren't uh comedians or really don't they just kind of got this job. You know what I mean? Like you got to audition for people that aren't really creative people a lot of the times and uh having to pitch things to people that are like, "Well, what if we did it like this?" And I think a lot of times people in the industry feel the need to give a note because otherwise they don't have a job. Yeah. So they'll try to change like what if you said it like this or like that? Um uh, I hate that part of it. Um, anything that's not creating material and hanging out with comedians, I hate. Um, being on the road, I hate the morning radio and uh, traveling, having to get on an airplane and all that shit. But, um, yeah, the, the stuff that's not um, telling jokes and hanging out with comics, I, it, it bums me out. It's an amazing job and profession to have any amount of success, and it is amazing. Because it's, uh, we took a fucking big shot, and it's like an alternative lifestyle. We're trying to beat the system. And I get frustrated sometimes with comedians 
we all do it. You know, you complain about certain things and who got what and I have to go do this. But you're like, don't forget, like, we've beat the system. We don't have I don't have an alarm clock waking me up. I don't have to go to sit at a desk. And the people that uh, you don't like in the business, it's just like, ah, that guy's a little annoying. It's pretty great. So um, we people I remember I'll I'll use this story because this is this is what really taught me to to love all of this was me and Angelo um, were driving to the city of Orange. It's by Anaheim, right? Yeah. And uh, we drove down, and that, that was always my favorite thing ever, just driving to a road gig with Angelo. I, I, I just, you know, even when we were just we were just broke, and we were, we had, I got $5, what do you got? I got $6. All right, well, we can stop by Del Taco and get, you know, get a huge meal. Right. And, I remember we drive down there, and this guy pumped up that the show was going to be like, he's, oh, it's going to be packed, man. It's a fun bar show. It's going to be packed. And we walked in after like an hour and a half drive sitting in traffic, and there were two people in there. Yeah. Two people. And I remember I walked outside. I was like, what the fuck, man? There's two people in there, dude. Fuck this. And he goes, what are you getting upset about? Dude, we get to do comedy. We're on the road, man. Yeah, we're yeah. not in L.A., man. We're in City of Orange, and we get to do this. That's the big thing that people forget. And I think this is in any profession is that you get to have a job. You don't have to have a job. You know what I mean? You can find another job. Right. You know, we get to go up there and entertain people. And with all the other bullshit, it's just, it doesn't, it's not nearly as fucking, you know, as cool as what we do. It's just, it's just what we get to do is so beautiful. Just sit in that, enjoy all of that work. And then all the rest of it, even when you don't get something or when you do get something, it's all just like, fuck it, dude. Every day is a gift. Yeah, for sure. It's fuck. It's the best, man. I love it. I love it. Okay. The band took the name Mookie Blaylock in reference to the then active all-star basketball player. The band played its first official show at the Off-Ramp Cafe in Seattle on October 22nd. You know this. 1990 and soon signed to Epic Records and renamed themselves Pearl Jam. Um, tell me about your first show experience. My first show was at uh, Chops Lounge in um, <laughs> what day? Do you remember? Yes, October. Also October. October twenty third. October eighth, uh, two thousand. I think it was the eighth. Either the eighth or ninth. It was Columbus Day. I guess I could look at this up. One of our historians could look it up. Columbus Day, uh, or right after Columbus Day, the Wednesday after Columbus Day. I think it was the eighth or ninth, something like that. Uh, 2000, and it was this place called Chops Lounge, which was in the Howard Johnson's Hotel in Boston, right next to Fenway Park. It's now like a hip, uh, like boutique hotel or whatever. But it was like an open. It was like a true open mic where like everyone shows up. There was fucking crazy people that kind of that you just sign up. Anyone could get on. Like a quarter of the people weren't even comedians. They were just you know homeless people or street people that were fucking. Those are the best. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was like a, it was a real open mic, and I was just walking around. I had graduated high school and kind of lo- I knew I wanted to be a comedian. And I was just walking around Boston one time, like aimlessly, and I saw the sign that said "Open Mic Wednesday," and I was like, "All right, I'm gonna go fucking do the open mic. I gotta go do it." And I went, and it was hosted by this guy named Larry Lee Lewis, who played the piano and did one-liners. He was like a co- combination Jerry Lee Lewis and Milton Berle or something. And uh, it felt very much like that Blind Melon No Rain video, where like the fucking B girl finds, which is another Pearl Jam song, B girl. Um, she finds like all these other B. Where you're like, "Yes, this is where I belong." And it was yeah. all these like. You know, middle age, they were probably my age now, but a bunch of older guys, and they were all fuck-ups and weirdos, and I was like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. Um, and I went on, I think I had like three minutes. I said, take my wife, please, at one point. Did you really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, my first joke was, uh, I went to that rest- that bar, cheers, nobody knew my name. That was like my joke. And then this joke, I think is actually decent. 
I said, uh, my friend got me the worst apartment warming gift ever, an air conditioner. Because that doesn't I warm an apartment. No, I get it. That no, was one. I, it's fantastic. And then I was like, I went to the Celtics game. A lot of empty seats for a team called the Celtics. Those are like my, my big jokes. <laughs> but it went pretty well. And I remember the guy, Larry Lee Lewis, gave me his card. And he's like, great. You're fantastic. I was 18. He's like, yeah. fantastic. And I remember being like, I'm in show business. Like, I have a card. And he's like, come back next Wednesday. And I was like, all right, great. And then I just did every Wednesday for like a year before someone. And I thought I was like, I'm a comedian now. And then someone was like, you should come do the other shows. And I was like, other shows? What do you mean? I'm like, I'm, I'm killing it here. And then slowly I started doing other open mics, and then before you know it, it's like you're doing every night. After 10 became a hit, Nirvana's frontman called Pearl Jam sellouts, claiming that it wasn't a real indie rock record because all the guitar solos that were on it. Cobain and Vetter eventually became friends. Are there any friendships that you have that have started bad and then became super close? Well, so many, because when I was drinking, I was bitter. I, would, I had that bad habit of hating everybody new. I don't know if you've had that period in your life. Like, oh, yeah, In dude. my 20s, everyone, I was like, who is this fucking guy? Like, that was like my natural. And then you start realizing, you're like, oh, I say that about every person. I'm like, oh, I don't like this guy. I don't like this person. Because you went, you wanted, you're competitive and you want to be like, no, no, I'm the fucking guy. So definitely there was relationships. Um, I remember my buddy Sam Morrill, who's a close friend of mine. Love Sam. I did, new fa- I did new faces with him. Oh, no. Yeah. He's like one of my best friends now. But we went on a road trip. He was like a fan of mine because I was a little older. And we co-headlined together. And he just kind of annoyed me. And I remember being like, oh, this guy sucks. Yeah. Not sucks. But like, I, I was just like. I thought he was a great comedian. I remember being like, this guy. He just sucks as a person. That, you just weren't hitting it off with him? Yeah, that was part of it. Well, first of all, like, he was just like, we went, to, we flew to the wrong airport, and uh, he couldn't drive well, so I had to do all the driving. And then um, he was, like, newer and, like, had top billing over me. So it was a lot of, like, stuff. Like, it wasn't even him as a person. It was just my own bitterness, alcoholic yeah. shit. But I remember being like, oh, man, I don't know about this guy. And then I watched him on stage, and I thought he was, like, better than me as a comic, and he was new, and I was like, I fucking hate this guy. I was like, he's driving me crazy. He's a better comic than I am. And now we're like, shortly after that, you realize you're like, oh, I'm just a fucking idiot. This guy's like the best, literally one of the best people I've ever met in my life. One of my yeah. best friends. Also one of the best comedians in the world. So, and there was a few other people like that where I just kind of was like, I don't know about this. Literally every person I met, I was skeptical. I was like, ah, I don't know about this asshole. And then almost everybody I've ever met, I love. Like there's very few in fact, almost no comics. And I'm like, I can't even be in the room with that person. In fact, there's zero comics like that. Your ego's not your amigo, people. All right, here we go. Vitology's release was likely held up due to Pearl Jam's battle against corporate ticket selling, Titan Ticketmaster. Always a band that put their fans first. They thought the consumer was getting ripped off by the company and the artists weren't receiving their fair share of ticket sales. Uh, also, in 2006, Pearl Jam created the Vitology Foundation to support nonprofit organizations doing commendable work. There, there's one thing I can say about Pearl Jam is that they are full of integrity. Sure. Like, this band has a heart. This band is, is about their audience. They, that's why they play those three-hour shows. That's why they give that. He throws up the tambourines. That's why I think Eddie... Is gets drunk on stage and just has the greatest time of his life because they're so just they they feel the love and they want to give it back to the people that have gotten them to this point. Yeah, I love that. I love that about them. And one thing that bothers me though, the Ticketmaster thing. By the way, they're back through Ticketmaster and their concerts are like eighty five bucks, and I'm like, oh fuck. 
Really? Um, but that, but that, I mean, that's the way it goes, I guess, or whatever. But um, also, like, unbelievable philanthropists. Like, they give away so much money. Um, and that's also been, like, a big inspiration to me also, you know, just trying to be like, all right, let me try to take care of uh, people and groups and be active and stuff like that. No, they're fucking just seem like genuinely great people and give back to the community and stuff. Joe, you were fantastic. Thank Uh, you. I'm so glad I got to sit down and talk to you about your favorite band, man. This Uh, means a lot to me. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, don't tweet mean things to me. I'm very sensitive. Give it up for Joe List, guys. And for all things Joe List, go to his website. It's comedianjoelist.com. You can find Joe on all social media at Joe List Comedy. And at check out season two of the stand-ups on Netflix to see his half hour. It is hysterical. I'll be posting his mixtape track listing link on my social media and on the website. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. February 26th, guys, we'll have Shimmy Shimmy at the Comedy Store. That's where comedians give away shit from their lives to audience members. March 20th, the goddamn Comedy Jam at the Roxy, my fucking home. I love the Roxy. Shout out to Molly. Shout out to everybody. Also, big shout out, guys, to my buddy Morty, my buddy Dave, Jeremiah, and Pete for helping me put this shit together. All tickets are on my website at joshadammyers.com. And for all things 500, go to the500podcast.com. Now, as I said earlier, if you guys want the podcast a day earlier, if you guys want some free 500 swag, if you guys want to help support me, go and join the movement, the 500 Club. It's our Patreon. Do it. The 500podcast.com backslash club for all details on Patreon membership, guys, and other ways to support the 500. We're going to give away free shit. We got a bunch of merch coming, guys. We're going to give it away to you. You get the podcast a day earlier. I'm going to make a T-shirt that says, fuck my downstairs neighbor if you can hear the shitty music she's playing right now because she knows I'm taping this voiceover. And if you guys want to help me get out of this apartment, join for the fucking Patreon. I love you guys. Now... We just listened to Pearl Jam from 1994. Now, here is an artist that was directly influenced by this album. From Arkansas, we have Wellis with his song Rock and Roll. If you're in a band and were directly influenced by one of these albums or artists, we want your music, okay? Send it to me. Send it to 500podcasts at gmail.com. Make sure you put the album and artist that influenced you in the subject line. Help me help you. I want to get, I want to break bands, man. I want people that need help to send me shit, and I will fucking put it out there to make sure the world can hear your music. Because as this blows up, which it is, not yet, but we're getting there. We're fucking getting there. I'm telling you, we got, dude, we got some good numbers of some subscribers from all over Australia, Sweden, fucking Canada, LA, all over, man. And I love it. Next week 
is Mod the Hoople Week with their 1972 album, All the Young Dudes. I've already been listening. I fucking love this record. So y'all got some homework to do. I want y'all to have a great week. Stay fleecy. King of Fleece, out.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh, out there! Yes, welcome everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimba the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! Next Chapter Podcasts.